Today on Writers Get Animated, the scariest Disney movie ever made. Dinosaur. I mean the Black Cauldron. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about animation and storytelling and crazy kings trapped into kitchenware. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're talking about Disney's The Black Cauldron, the 1985, oh, what's the opposite of masterpiece? Um, Disaster piece? Land, landmark film. La- it is a landmark film. It's a, <laughs> And I want to say this up front. This is one of our types of episodes where we go into something and see if it holds up, something near and dear from our childhood and we look at it. Now, it's not from Mackenzie's childhood because he hadn't seen it before. But and I was born after it. <laughs> and you were born. Oh, I'm so old. Compared. <laughs> and or you're so you're so young. That that's a good turn. I should have turned it that way. There we go. But it's to see if something that you've experienced as a young child does it still hold up now that you're older. We did this with Muppet Babies last season. And oh yeah. Muppet Babies does hold up. The other one in that was that Captain Bucky O'Hare. Which does not hold which up. Which does not hold up. Which So now it is Chris's turn to have something he loves not hold up. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Now, let's talk a little bit about what the Black Cauldron is for the folks at home who may have missed and or skipped this particular Disney film. And or been born after. Or been born after. So... The Black Cauldron was made in 1985. Okay, no, it was released in 1985. <laughs> there we go. The The process of getting the Black Cauldron to screen started in the 70s. So in 1971, Disney got the rights to the five books in the Chronicles of Prydain by Lloyd Alexander. So five novels. They got all five and... It took 15 years before they were able to get it onto the screen. And then it wasn't, it was for some reason not released on VHS for years after in 1998. So it took 13 years before Disney even put it on VHS. Two years later, they put it on DVD. That's how long they waited to put it on VHS was DVD was already a thing. And they're like, eh, let's get this onto VHS, I guess. Okay. This is explaining a couple things from my childhood. Cause I remember that my mom bought the black cauldron on VHS along with the dark crystal at the same time. So it's probably when it came out in 98 and she had the intention of showing both these movies to me. And I never watched either of them with her. Huh. Uh, and now I've seen both eventually. <laughs> it, it, it evens itself out. So but it, it was a long process to get it, and I guess they were not happy with it. And um, it it languished not being released on VHS, like I said, for 13 years. So that's a vote of no confidence, I think, from the Disney Company brand. Is Well, we don't want to make money on this now. Maybe later we'll make some money on this. It was just in the vault. They keep it in the vault. I know. It's like, should we let this out... 
It's like, wait, wait, if we let this out, do we let out Song of the South? No, no, leave that in. Leave that in. Get back in there, Br'er Rabbit. Get back Get in there. Get back next to Dinosaur. Stay there. Locking you back up again. I, I think we should do a, a series of It Came From The Disney Vault. Oh. Oh. Anyway, uh, so these are five novels, uh, fantasy novels, Chronicles of Perdain, and The Black Cauldron, the film, is actually taking the storyline from the first two novels and not using most of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as the, I have a quote here from the author after having seen the movie. I think it's a really telling quote um, on how kind this person is. <laughs> but, but also how to view the Black Cauldron and adaptation. So here's the quote. First, I have to say there is no resemblance between the movie and the book. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, the movie in itself, purely as a movie, I found to be very enjoyable. I had fun watching it. What I would hope is that anyone who sees the movie would certainly enjoy it, but I'd also hope that they'd actually read the book. The book is quite different. It's a very powerful, very moving story, and I think people would find a lot more depth in the book. That is a master of backdoor compliment that I feel like belongs on the real writers of Disney animated movies or something. <laughs> <laughs> that That's just a testament to so much right there. It was... It's it's an enjoyable movie. It has nothing to do with what I wrote. And I hope that people read what I wrote. I hope that people got something out of the movie and maybe it inspires them to read the book, which was better, which I wrote. That so. being said, I always have hesitancy when people have described their own work as very powerful and very moving. Right. I haven't read the book, so I can't judge them. I... But. Uh, I have not either. I've wanted to since I saw this movie, um, but I was busy playing the video game that was released in around the same period from Sierra, which was not a very good game, and I never beat it because I kept dying trying to climb a cliff. So Sounds right. Boom. For video games of the era. Could never figure that out. But it was interesting because the, the video game actually changed the story based on what happened. So if you, if you save the pig, if you don't save the pig, if you, you know, die at this point, it it's just gets to be crazy. It's choose your own adventure because we couldn't figure out the story either. Is Really, it's like the mass effect of the 80s. Yeah, true. Um, one thing before we dig into the story, I do want to say that Disney has the movie rights again. As of 2016, Disney has the movie rights to all five novels, all five books, The Chronicles of Perdain, again. So we may be in for a round two of maybe where Disney gets it right this time. What's interesting to me is that they've also recently acquired the movie rights to one of my favorite childhood YA fantasy novel series. That's also five books, The Lost Years of Merlin by T.A. Barron. Mm. Um, I love these books. I recently discovered there's six more of them I didn't know about, so now I'm going back and reading all the new stuff. 
And it's interesting to me that Disney's reacquired the movie rights to these five books, but they also have the movie rights to a different five book fantasy series. Yeah. I, f- I figure they're trying, they, they want to do it again. They see something in the work. I mean, obviously since 1971, this was Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas, two of the nine old men at the time, were saying that they were the ones who convinced the studio to produce the movie in the first place. They wanted to get these books done. And he said if it had been done properly, it might be, quote, as good as Snow White, if they had gotten it right. And I think that's true. I think there's threads of a story that you can see there, which is why I want to go back to the original book and see what was there, because you see so many possibilities and just, I think it's a idea of follow through. And I think it's also editing. Like for yeah. me, I have a note at one point, like, oh, it's 45 minutes in. We must be possibly done meeting new characters and we can do story now, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, no. no. <laughs> and it was even cut down from what it was at one point. So there was, um, at towards the end of production, the film had a screening. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was pretty new at that point, saw it. And there were children in the audience from this test screening who were fleeing in terror, like running out of the theater, much like my son at the Boss Baby, I imagine, Uh, but more of them. (laughs) Just children being frightened out of their minds and running out and running out and leaving. And so he decided that certain things should get removed from it. What well, is scary? Like it's it's very. I feel like they spent this film's entire budget making the Horn King scary. Yeah, specifically, and they did. <laughs> like, like the Horn King is simultaneously one of the best Disney villains and one of the worst Disney villains. So, this week, the hottest Disney villain in New York has everything scary. Seeing him from behind for a really long time. Slowly stepping down a staircase, a skull face whose jaw doesn't match the words in the voiceover. (laughs) Fog and shadows, big SAT words, piles of skeletons, and an indecipherable plot for domination. (laughs) (laughs) Again, he's scary. The performance is wonderful. However, it is capital G generic. And yes. Capital uh, T for trope. So it, it apparently the, <laughs> the original idea of the Horn King um, <laughs> was he had a, a big bellied Viking with a red beard, a fiery temper, and wore a steel helmet with two large horns. That's completely different. That was the original concept of the Horn King that they were trying to go for. And now we have a John Hurt voiced, skeleton faced, robed, half, well, no, uh, two thirds dead (laughs) villain who walks slowly and is just really freaky. I kind of thought this like 
the unholy love child of Gargamel and Skeletor. Yeah, you do feel that. <laughs> like with their powers combined, they're both infinitely scarier. Which is why when I saw the villain of Wander Over Yonder, that I'm like, oh, it's basically the Horned King, but silly? Ah, uh, I love hatred. So, I mean, not the feeling of hatred, hatred the character. Right. <laughs> so it's like, oh, they got the Horned King back in toon form, like cartoony form. But that, that gives you a lot of backstory in this and, and trying to see, like, what are they even talking about? That's kind of what the film feels like to watch it. So do you want to say, being as a person who experienced it for the first time, like I said, my experience with it is I saw it in theaters, I played the PC game, and bought the VHS the day it came out in 1998 <laughs> when, I, when I was a freshman in college. Like you do. Like you do in college. Like, <gasps> Black Cauldron, boom. So I feel like I did that. I did the gargoyles in college. <laughs> um, my experience was I rented it and watched it on my couch over two days this past week. Um, <laughs> uh, partly because I fell asleep the first time, but it's not the movie's fault. I was up really late trying to do my homework for this. And so then I watched the ending again over dinner the next day. So seeing the ending twice now. Okay. It still doesn't make sense to me. No, the ending makes n no sense. No sense. Um, what really struck me is it feels like a midpoint between two other cultural landmarks that I know. It feels like a good kid-friendly version of Ralph Bakshi's Wizards from the 70s. Mm -hmm. But it's also like watching an 80s, like a parody 80s animated movie of what The Legend of Zelda would look like as a cartoon movie. <laughs> <laughs> like watching this and knowing that Nintendo likes to do overt film homages to their favorite things and they love disney like i feel like the black cauldron heavily influenced a lot of early legend of zelda there's a hero in green with like this weird electric sword yeah. there's this kind of peasant princess with long blonde hair and like a glowing like fairy sidekick thing um the villain is like very uh, ganon if you're familiar with nintendo world um and there's like the one shot this is when it really struck me when um terror tarn Taran, yeah. Taran. I keep wanting to call him Tobin, but he's not Tobin. He's Taran. <laughs> uh, that's a Kristen McKenzie joke. Yeah. Uh, he's Taran. Um, and he's like standing on the cliff looking at the Horn King's castle for the first time. And we'll include this in our notes, but it's exactly like some of the very first Legend of Zelda promo art of Link on a cliff looking at... Um, Hyrule in the distance in the sunset, and they even just redid it for the most recent game, Breath of the Wild, with Link on a clifftop looking at a, like, cursed castle in the distance. Like, it's the same thing. Right. I don't know if this is just a trope overall, or if it's just these two things, or if, like, just Nintendo just stole it. I don't know. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. It's between Wizards and Zelda. Okay. That's all that I know. And for me, it feels a lot... It feels more like... And this is not a knock on this gentleman. I enjoy his films a lot. It feels more like a Don Bluth film than a Disney film at this point. So, mm -hmm. and so if you're looking at something like Secret of Nim, um, if you're looking at something like All Dogs Go to Heaven, these kinds of Five, you know, Five Goes West, An American Tale, where the style feels a little bit more like that. It feels um, like it was animated on parchment. 
Mm-hmm. So stylistically, it feels a little aged, but it, and it does show there was a new process that they were developing in terms of getting the rough animation onto the cells. So the next iteration from the Xerox method from the 1960s went from 101 Dalmatians, where you try to get the actual drawings onto the cell itself. Mm. So stylistically, it doesn't look as much like a Disney film as you would expect. And it's the first Disney film, the first animated feature Disney film to be rated PG. And I think it's because it is genuinely has scary moments. It will frighten young children. Um, Do you think it would still be PG today? I think, I think it would be. And I, I think it would still be rated PG if they were to rate it today. I think it would be. I think it would get PG-13. Really? Distinctly, because there's a very non-Disney moment in there that made me think of Wizards, it's when uh, Fluter is turned into the frog and he's like stuck in between the witch's breasts. Yeah, I forgot that happened. Yeah, I'm like, this is not a Disney movie. This is something that would not be PG today. Like, just specifically that moment. And it was a long moment, too. They they spent a lot of time yeah. I almost said it's like, in there, but... <laughs> it's, like, not quite the level of joke that a kid would find funny yet, and it's, like, too basic for an adult to find funny. It's just a weird moment. Yeah, Jack was confused. One, that he, that he, was, he was watching it with me. I don't remember why I let him sit down next to me to watch it, because he, w- he was not interested. And he was fine with this, but not the boss baby? <laughs> I think it may have to do more with the big screen... <laughs> than anything because he's like this is scary daddy but he wasn't upset about it but i think if it were if he had seen it on the large screen i think he probably would have been terrified and left mm-hmm. but seeing it on our um our what's it called a uh, regular TV. size tv i was trying to give a, a nice a modest our modest size t- tv um he was okay watching it so this film, the, the plot of it, as we've kind of said a little bit, we have Taran, who is the hero, who is a pig keeper, who wants to be something more. Which is pretty standard fare, and I'm behind it so far. Right. And um, before we meet Taran, though, we do have a narrator who tells us about the legend of the Black Cauldron, where an old king was so evil that the only way to stop him was to trap his soul into a cauldron and hide that cauldron somewhere. Yeah, and that doesn't make sense as the movie goes on. But the opening, it's like this prototype for what later becomes in the golden age of Disney. The, I'm sorry, the renaissance of Disney. Um, like the differently stylized opening, like Mulan with the... Um, I'm trying to think what else I said. Moana had a, the tattoo opening. Right. Like It's kind of like this narrator plot of like a different style. Except in Black Cauldron, you just have like a single shot of the Black Cauldron. Uh, where, where the face kind of shows up a little bit more. Oh, and the, that. Yeah, the, the face of the king, which is a cool medieval stylized drawing. So the artwork is interesting. 
But then we hear about, and then the horned king wants to get this. So we get the plot told to us the first time in by a narrator. And then it immediately changes style to really happy music. Yeah. And you're like, what? And that's your first jarring moment of possibly too many cooks in the kitchen feeling in the film. It felt a lot like two movies. It was like this happy Disney movie with animal sidekicks, like pasted onto this like weird, scary monster they were trying to make less scary. Right. And I think they could have, they should have gone, they didn't decide. I think that at some point I, I was reading about the making of it and the making of it, I think would make its own fun movie about how, (laughs) how many names are in here. I mean, you had people like um, Tim Burton doing preliminary artwork and then all of his stuff got thrown out. And so you have all these people working on it. You just go through and read like John Musker who did speaking of Moana. I mean, my gosh, I mean, he's still doing work on (laughs) Disney. So John Musker doing this, he was the first director attached to the project. And apparently he was doing things that were too comedic in the first act and they got it. They fired him off of it and put him on to something else, onto um, The Great Mouse Detective. And it was just like, what, what's going on here? So you had all these styles and all these different people coming on and the, the story just keep, kept getting warped. It's but, like they put a story trust in charge of the movie, but they didn't have a single director who's responsible for it. Unlike now, they have a single director, but there's also a story trust that gives feedback. Right, but it felt more like the that they were taking everyone's feedback and just leaving it in instead of doing what you should do with feedback and notes and things, which is take it, say thank you, think about it, and do something that's true to the script based on that feedback. So even if you don't follow through on what the exact feedback is, let's say they said, I think the Horned King is too scary and he needs to be less scary. Even if they didn't follow through on that, maybe they could say, well, why does he feel too scary? Maybe he doesn't feel, maybe he feels too scary because he's not of the same world. Maybe the overall world needs to be changed because... Now, when we get to him, he seems like such an other to what we're telling right now. Mm -hmm. So that's how you take that feedback and say, I understand what you're feeling. I'm not going to turn him into a comedic character necessarily. Although I think they tried softening him with Creeper, his his henchman. Yeah, I, I, which does not work. Which does no, not it just work. makes him scarier. He's like a foil to the Horned King instead of softening him. <laughs> so you get a lot there. But we have, uh, getting back to what this story is about. See, this conversation is just as confused and in disarray as the film. Um, but so Taran, the pig keeper, is working and trying to make sure that the pig, who is prophetic... He's a prophetic pig. Like you do. Like you do. Um, does not fall in the hands of the Horned King to be able to find 
the black cauldron. And in one of the pig, Henwen, one of his visions, we find out that the Horn King does in fact know and wants to find Henwen. So now they decide that Dalbin, who is like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the film, in very, very much like Obi-Wan Kenobi, but slightly feels a little bit Middle Earth-ish, but... Mm -hmm. Gandalf Kenobi. Gandalf Kenobi, you know, just trying to help Taran be a pig boy and says, you need to get Henwen out of here. Take him out and hide Henwen so the Horn King can't use his powers for evil. See, I already have a different interpretation. I thought the Horned King learned about Henwin because they were using Henwin's power. Oh, I didn't get that. Like, I thought, like, the Dalbin got into a hurry to stop the vision because he realized the Horned King was, like, tracing the call at that point. He was horning in on the vision? No. no. Oh. <laughs> I was so proud of myself, too. <laughs> Darn. So, so your, your interpretation as Henwen is staring into this water bowl, having her vision and sharing it, almost like she's plugged in like you would a, a phone into a TV to show, you know, to do screen sharing of her well, vision. Yeah. You so, mentioned Middle Earth, and I think that's appropriate because it's like Frodo with the ring. Like, oh, okay, uh, what's his face? Um, Sauron can, like, know that Henwen is accessing the magic vision thing. Okay. I did not I did not think of that. But that makes that part more interesting if we interpret it that way. But oh it he gives it a catalyst at least. There's a catalyst to the story now. That's it true. doesn't make sense why it happens. There's no consequences, but there's a catalyst. And the hard part is then we also get from Dalbin at that moment, we also get a retelling of Oh no, the Horn King's going to find it. The Horn King's looking for it. He's going to do bad things with it. The Black It's like, do we need somebody else to tell us that the Black Cauldron is a bad thing? It's it's like It's called the Black Cauldron. <laughs> I know. It's like either either the narrator's going to do it or someone in the story's going to do it. If you're going to tell us if you're going to give us backstory, if you're going to give us really important information about something, Decide where it goes and who gets to tell it. But I feel like everyone says the same thing about the Black Cauldron. And everyone just keeps saying the Black Cauldron is bad. The Black Cauldron is bad. He's going to do it. He's going to. It's like, yes, yes, that's great. But in all these tellings of this Black, this Horned King who's after the Black Cauldron, we know that the Black Cauldron will resurrect an army. Um, which I don't know it, where the army came from in the first place, right? But the the Horn King, um, Skeletor slash Gargamel, Horn King, wants to take these decayed skeleton remains, dead soldiers, and resurrect them from the Black Cauldron so they can never die. And he has an army of the undead and be able to conquer the world. We don't really get a motive on why he wants to conquer the world. It's just like, I'm bad, I want to conquer the world kind of thing. Uh, if, there's, there's no depth, like Lloyd Alexander said. 
Right. If if this was his army, if this was his army that had lost, and something, and he wanted to get revenge on somebody else using his army plus the dead from the other army that he had lost to and have a larger army, that might be interesting, but that's never said on where all these bodies are coming from. Well, creepers like gathering bodies, but we don't know from where. Everyone's scared of the Horden King, but the Horden King doesn't appear to have any power without the Black Cauldron. Right. They're just, I mean, he is creepy, but that is, that's about as far as it goes. He's He has dragons. So he has two well, two dragons. Pterodactyl dragons. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Johnny Quest sound effect flashback. Oh. <laughs> so it's it's trying to figure out we need this villain and I think we're starting to get smarter about villains now in in our movies and in our animation. We want villains with a little more depth because when we don't, they get called out. So when we think of things like the biggest issue with Marvel films that people have are their lack of villains who are motivated by something or who are interesting. We get Loki, but that's about as deep as we go in terms of having interesting Marvel villains if we're talking about non-animation. I think we're going to get the Vulture in the same vein in a couple weeks. With, with Spider-Man? Yeah. Birdman, too. You, th- you think that we're going to get a good vulture? Yeah. Have okay. you seen the trailer? I'm excited. I've I, always liked the vulture. That's neither here nor there, though, but I am just saying counterpoint to your point. I think Marvel's getting better. I I would agree. I'm just saying that they hopefully they know it's a problem because when we spend all of we've spent all of our time on the hero's journey, the hero's journey, what is the hero getting? And then we... We think of the villain as a threat that's out there for the villain to over for the hero to overcome, but we don't necessarily think of the villain as motivated in the same way. Like what is the villain's journey? What is the villain actually motivated to do? And I don't think it needed to be much more than maybe a couple of lines to motivate his actions in some way. You know, why does he want this army? We get a lot of silence while he's talking about his plan. Just, I will make you all cauldron born and raise you back up and no one will ever be able to beat me. But we don't get a sense on where the bodies are coming from, who he's doing this to. I think it's just... Who, who he's against other than the world in general? Is there, a, is there another king out there? Are there multiple kingdoms? Who rules the world? Who ru- rules the realms of Pridane? Because he's the is only the one we know Is the princess really a princess? I don't know. Right, because he does have a princess that he's taken, Princess but Alonwe. But she's like not trapped and he seems to like forget who she is and she's like dressed very plain and they don't call her princess later. Uh. Yeah, and she has a f- flying bauble, little flying ball that glows that she says the Horned King kidnapped her because maybe the ball could help him find the cauldron. 
but that's not clear by any means. Then we have a really forced love story between Taran and Elanwi. Yeah. Which does not work. For, for me, a lot of the Black Cauldron, and this is why I think of Wizards when I saw the Black Cauldron, it feels like if someone tried to tell the story that was on the cover of a rock album from the 70s, it's like, cool, it looks really pretty, this seems like a good idea, let's tell this story, and then you start thinking about it and you realize like how little there is there <laughs> to tell. <laughs> It's got some great visual moments. I love Taran on the cliff. I love um, a lot of the Horn King close-ups, the the Black Cauldron idea. Like, there's a lot of cool single shots, and it's the in-between that just doesn't make sense or work. Yeah. I mean, there's there's one shot that you don't really get in a Disney film, which is blood. A couple times, yeah. Where Taran is thrown to the ground by the pterodactyl dragons and looks up and his lip is bloodied i was surprised when i saw that which we don't normally get um the death of the horn king sorry spoilers i should have said spoilers oh my god they killed the villain in a disney movie what, <laughs> what? they've never done that before um <laughs> from the and the age-old tradition of disney killing the villain horrifically and Spoiler alert number two, none of the main characters cause a death. It's like an accidental villain death. What do you know? It's, oh, yeah, they, it's, the thing about it, it's problematic because we don't know the stakes of the world. How is this, how is the Horn King, I mean, I understand having an army of undead people is probably bad for the kingdom, but what does this really mean stakes-wise on a personal level for everybody. Is this, yeah. is it going to revert things back to the way th things were? You know, if a wrong, horrific person gets in charge of the world again and somehow turns things back and removes all the progress that the land has, you know, been building on and building on and just turns it all back. Is he making Perdane great again? I think he is making Perdane great again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that's where you're going with this. But I'm, I'm just saying, what are the consequences for the Horn King having this uh, this army? And what is it going to cause to the day-to-day Predanian? What, what's it going to, how is it going to force Dalbin? How are, how is Tarin going to be affected? Is he going to be in war again? Because maybe he, well, he's, he wants to be a warrior Maybe the Horn King coming to power, maybe he's more excited about that because it becomes more like Hamilton. Like, I wish there was a war so everyone could see how awesome I am. Okay, let's talk about Tarn because he really wants to be a warrior in like, he won't let you forget it either. No, he won't. It's his only character note besides like having these weird force moments with the princess. Question mark. Princess question mark. I'm going to call her that from now on. <laughs> um, and he's like not charming in how he wants to be a warrior. And no. so he then latches onto the sword as being this material thing that makes him a warrior. Um, and it's kind of a same force plot. Like he really wants to be a warrior. He gets a sword. He feels he is a warrior. He gives up the sword and then he feels that he isn't a warrior. And then he realizes that 
friendship is key? Uh, no, he doesn't realize that. I think he he just recognizes, yeah, maybe I'm better off as just a pig boy. <laughs> maybe friends are more important than the sword, but I don't think he really learns anything. He may I mean, learn something about sacrifice, but not from anything that he did. If I were Tarrant, I felt that I would have immediately regretted my decision to bring Gurgi back without knowing he was immediately. Yeah. Like, here, I will give up my, my lightsaber if you could just bring Jar Jar back. Just bring Jar Jar back, please. Misa, Misa, Misa. No, just kidding. Lightsaber. No, no, lightsaber back. Give me my... <laughs> <laughs> you, I leave Jar Jar here. I'll kill him. I just need both things. <laughs> it's like none of us really want him. I know you don't want to spend the rest of your life with him. Oh, uh, Kirky, a... I had to like replay his first scene. It's like the original Tom Hardy is Bane. Like I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> He had this weird voice. It was super annoying. Nothing about it was charming, but he kept sticking around. It's like he became the friend by being there. <laughs> his, his character design is so cute, though. He has a little mustache, and he looks like a, a dog that can walk on two legs. He's, and he just talks like, Oh, munchies and crunchies in here somewhere. That's a little too accurate. I needed to stop. Um, but he looks like, Later in Beauty and the Beast, he looks like Belle's dad and the Ottoman that became a dog, like, crossed together. That's totally it. It's Maurice <laughs> and the Ottoman. Become Skoggy! Crunches the crunches in here somewhere. Oh no, Master, you don't want to go to that scary place. I think we had this talk about this voice. I love, like, this is the one good impression you can do, and it's the one that I can't stand. <laughs> it's it's like uh, it's the monkey's paw. Make me good at impressions that everyone <laughs> hates. Just Gurgi and Jar Jar. No. <laughs> what have you done? And Shrek. So... It, it feels like so much like a Disney movie that wants so much to be a Disney movie, <laughs> but also so much doesn't want to be a Disney movie. So at this time, we have Fox and the Hound. They don't know what they're going to do. They, they're they still not figuring out if they want to be more adult. Do they want to be more artistic? It feels like they tried to go back to... Something that they knew how to do, which was fantasy. Mm -hmm. But they took something that was complicated and huge and whittled it down into something that was not complicated. Um, instead of doing what they did normally with something like Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella and taking something small and building that up. I yeah. think I think they're awesome at that, you know, adding flesh to bones instead of stripping. Like the King. Right. Except for stripping away in the Black Cauldron, I guess they were just stripping away and stripping away and stripping away. This was before, this was Disney before they were doing things like TV shows or mm -hmm. sequels 
or spin-offs. This was Disney before any of that. So the reason why they got five books and created The Black Cauldron out of two of those books was mostly because this was their one shot and they did not want to throw it away. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. Because I, I think if they could just have done one of the books or then something where they knew that it was going to be more things, if they had done a miniseries, but Disney wasn't doing miniseries at that time, you know, if they just were trying so hard to get this feature animation to keep going, I think that was their downfall is they tried to smash everything into one instead of letting it be a series. I would watch this Disney XD show. If that's what they choose to do with these books, um, I think I'd be into it. And I think they're kind of on a roll with like, they're starting to do that with their TV shows. Like I haven't watched the seven D yet, but I know that they have like shows loosely inspired by old Disney movies. Yeah. And I mean, and newer ones, you know, Tangled. I know that's on Disney Channel right now, not Disney XD, but they're still, they're bringing those back and they're seeing TV as a way to extend these stories. It's a different way that you could tell the stories. And I think in the world of Game of Thrones and fantasy and TV, I think these would be better on the small screen mm-hmm. and that they could put a lot of money towards them. And have it. And 2D animation lives on the the small screen now. It's not happening on the big screen as often, but it really is flourishing on TV. Give us a kid's Game of Thrones. That's what I want from Black Cauldron. And that's I think that's what they were <laughs> that's what they were going for. Um <sighs> without without knowing what they were doing. They were I it feels like a movie from the 70s trying to be edgy from the 80s but not knowing how to be edgy yeah in a in a real way like it feels with them cuz it feels forced and i think that's a lot of what the movie feels like is forced and i feel like they do refine a lot of these jokes that we're criticizing a lot of these moments are refined in the little mermaid Yes. Like without that trying to be too edgy and dark, like it does have really edgy and dark, scary moments. And it has, um, of course, Ursula based on the famous drag queen divine as like these, this large breasted woman, but it works because like she pops out of her dress at one point and it's like, not like this weird unflattering joke. It's like this funny, like everyone thinks it's cool and scary. Yeah. That, that is a scary, scary moment. But I, I think it's it's a missed opportunity in terms of so much storytelling because we have so many characters. But the big problem is we haven't figured out who Taran really is and who the Horn King is. And if we can't define those two and why those two should be at odds in terms of a, the large, grander scale... No matter how many you add, because you also add Princess, as we were saying, Alonwi, you add Gurgis, you add mm-hmm. Fluter Flam, who is a minstrel 
for some reason. I don't know why he's in the film. I really I mean, don't know. With his harp that's like Pinocchio's nose. Right. His, <laughs> that's a good uh, way of describing it. Uh, a string pops every time he tells a lie. And they never explain it. And Dalbin, you have Creeper. You have, towards the end, you start getting the three witches. You and get you have the, the fairy that they meet. The fairy folk, like a whole race of people that you meet for about four minutes. But the, specifically the one fairy folk who's like with them, but then disappears and then comes back. And then he's like the last character we see in the movie. Right. Ugh. That was when I was just over meeting new characters. Like every scene is introducing a character until finally we meet the fairy guy. No, I'm sorry. Then the witches come immediately after. Right. <sighs> after the witches were done meeting people at that point, it's the end of the movie. It's the hard part is that everything takes so long in the first and second act. By the time we get to the third act, there's no time for anything else. So by the time the, the Horned King gets the cauldron and we begin act three, everything is just rapid fire and then wrapped up. And you're like, wait, who won? They, they won? It's over now. What? So he gets the cauldron. He, I think he, he ha his plan is working for about three minutes. His plan is going swimmingly for three minutes before it goes horrifically wrong. Yeah. We spend we spend more time with Gurgi fighting over an apple than we do with the <laughs> Horn Kings actually having success. Yeah. That's how confused the film is. We spend more time with Gurgi fighting about an apple than we do with the Horn King having success and bringing these monsters back. And Yes, I know that 12 minutes were cut out of the film and most of it was from the third act because it's really scary. Mm. And I, I watched that. Yeah, there, there are some pieces of it where um, and you have some of the undead soldiers killing people, which, okay. is, which is neat. Oh, stakes. What? But uh, yeah, but all of it was cut for the sake of not freaking children out. Ugh, stupid children. So I guess everyone was like, oh, it's a Disney movie. It should be fine to bring my kid. It's rated PG. Eh, that doesn't mean anything. Disney trumps 3D. Or 2D, 1D. What am I saying? PG? PG, thank you. <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> like, I, what? I don't know where you're going. I don't know. So the Disney name being family friendly trumps the PG rating, I think, for people. And they weren't paying attention to it. Yeah, and Peachy did mean something different back then. It did. And there is like, at the end, there's a sad moment, but I'm not sure we get from the scary part with the Horden King to like Gurgi appearing dead. Yeah. Like I know plot wise how we get there, but earlier on the witches say that they have a plan to get both the sword and the cauldron and they trade the cauldron for the sword. And so then they come back after the third act and say like, oh, okay, well, you don't need the cauldron, so we'll just take it. And they bargain. And then they immediately offer the sword to trade back for the cauldron. But they wanted both. Uh, so they, yeah, they're, they're trade. But we have, I know why they're trading the sword. Because we need Taran to make the choice to save a friend as opposed to get the magic awesome sword back. 
plot wise, I understand the choice, but I don't think that they like made the other characters besides Tarn believable in that moment. And then they trade for Gurgi instead, and there's like the scary effect and scary sound, but there's absolutely no catch to this bargain. I'm not sure why this is a scary moment. Yeah, I. Jack was very confused by it. <laughs> Good. That means Jack is too smart. Yeah, Jack was very confused about how Gurgi got back and how Gurgi was dead, and is he going to. He was very upset that Gurgi went into the cauldron and sacrificed himself, which is the one good thing that, you know, Gurgi had done. And I, I know that we have to save a cute Disney character and we have to bring him back, but my goodness. Ugh. If Jar Jar, okay. I wish Jar Jar would make the same sacrifice. He's still alive. We might still see that. Misa, no. Misa, no. Um, so question for you, Chris. Has it held up? The only thing that holds up is the promise of a better movie. <laughs> like, like the so no. So no. It, the, the promise of it, the possibility of it, if you look at certain moments, the artwork on it, there, there has a lot of potential there. And I really love that story. Like the moment where Taran takes the sword and it starts hacking through things and is like, um, has the magic lightning on it and saws through that guy's ax. And then he cuts through and it's like, like that is a majorly awesome scene. Mm -hmm. It's not earned dramatically <laughs> at all, but my gosh, it's wonderful. And the music just ramps up and. It's I mean, the cover of a 70s rock album. It's just really good, but no, it does not hold up story-wise by any means. By any means. So, follow-up question. Yes. If this exact movie, animation and story and everything, were made today, but by DreamWorks, would you have gone to see it? No. No, I don't think I would have. Do you think the Disney name kind of saves this movie a bit? I think so. Mm. I think so, because you're like, well, they tried. <laughs> you know? We're kind of conned into, like, believing that this is better than it is. Quite possibly. And I think that there, there are some stylistic choices. There's some artwork choices. I think, I don't think if DreamWorks had made it, I, I think if DreamWorks had made this exact movie today, it would have the same story problems. Mm -hmm. The problem, the, the thing that I would also have a problem with would probably be the voice acting. They'd probably bring a lot more um, famous people in for the voice acting, which would be annoying. And I think the other thing that would be annoying would be the fart jokes. I want to see the poster of just a close-up of the Horn King's face on his plain color background. It's like one raised DreamWorks eyebrow. Like, Patrick Stewart is the Horn King. <laughs> DreamWorks, the Black Cauldron. But then you see on his shoulder, you see Creeper, like, picking his nose. <laughs> yes. Like, that's that's the poster you would get from DreamWorks for the Black Cauldron. <laughs> like, Creeper uh, picking his nose and eating it. Oh, he, too real. 
And you get it on Instagram, and you see the an animation of him like putting it in his mouth and picking boogers. And... Creeper voiced by Patton Oswalt. Oh, so perfect and wrong at the <laughs> same time. <laughs> uh, Seth Rogen as Gurgi. Uh, no, that's that's too easy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I gotta have it. I gotta have what you're eating, man. Give it to me, man. I know you got it in there. You're holding out on me. You're that holding out on me. That means that James Franco has to be Tarin, then. Oh, gosh. It makes it so much worse. We're just re-recasting this perfect movie for made today in that it's perfect and that none of it is anything we'd like to do with it. And I feel like the song would be like... Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, another remix of Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, because that's what every movie needs these days. Wow. I'm just horrified by this count. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. Now that we've made fun of it. Like, to death. Chris, what was your favorite thing about this movie, whether now or as a kid? Or both? Uh, my favorite thing, just stand... I think it's it's the same as a kid and as, as an adult. It's them escaping from the castle, that sequence where they're escaping from the castle... One, because something is happening in the movie, probably for like the second time, <laughs> something is actually happening and taking place. But also it's just really exciting. Everything is coming together. All the elements are there. The artwork, the music is exciting. It's just a really great sequence that doesn't lead anywhere dramatically, except they leave. Mm -hmm. But it's so good. Well... If you'd like to play the video game version of that, you can play The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, where they have that exact sequence at the end. <laughs> from awesome. the 90s. From the 90s. They stole it, clearly. Um, awesome. I think my favorite thing is just the Horned King, because I'm uh, uh, a scary masochist like that. <laughs> just everything about him. Yeah. The, I mean, the, except for the plot. <laughs> that, right. His plot and his character is... But like everything about him in terms of his aesthetic and his voice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, we do have a little bit of bu un unfinished business to discuss. And I think this is really fitting in the conversation we've had about cooks in the kitchen and how to help your stories. But um, Mackenzie, do you want to? talk about this a little bit. Yeah, we've recently plagued um, animation writers and storyboard artists on Twitter with questions about their best and worst notes ever received. And Aaron Waltka of Troll Hunters, um, and writing for 13-ish of those episodes, uh, was kind enough to answer. Um, he's told us that the worst note he ever received was no one knows who Spock is, dot, 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 or the Ninja Turtles. Which it's I think just, is a, that's a pretty bad note. That's a bad note on so many levels. I don't know who, who thinks that they're everything in the world that they don't know who this is. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> the 
best note he ever received is needs more vomit. <laughs> I think that's a that's a pretty good memorable note. But he also added on the most constructive note he ever got, which is what's relevant to the Black Cauldron talk we're having today, um, is which two characters relationship is this episode about and what do they learn about each other by the end? And here at Writers Get Animated, we subscribe to the character-driven methodology. And this note could really be like every episode of our podcast boiled down is this is what we have to say. <laughs> <laughs> what are the relationships of these characters and what does the character learn? Yes. Or what do they learn about each other through the action that happens? So thank you, Aaron. For we appreciate you, Aaron. Giving us that. So speaking of horned kings who want to cause great indecipherable and unknown damage to the land in which they live, we're going to talk about politics next time on Writers Get Animated. (laughs) (laughs) Please watch The Simpsons Season 19, Episode 10, E Pluribus Wiggum, and Futurama Season 2, Episode 3, Ahead in the Poles. Wonderful. Yeah. And try not to think too hard about the state of politics. That's our other homework. As always, thank you to our engineer, Nigel Cotino, and to Jacob Reed for our theme music. Find us on the web, on Twitter, at WG Animated. Like us, respond to us, reply to us, give us show ideas. If there's a show that you love that we haven't yet spoken about, let us know on Twitter. Like us on Facebook.com slash WG Animated. And check out show notes and videos. Do some reading at writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. That'll do, pig. That'll do. That would have been a much better ending for that film. Mm-hmm. Good and night, everybody. Oh. Good night, everybody. Good night. Gorky says good night. I could do Lin-Manuel Miranda to take that out of our mouth, but I don't really want to. Nope, we're done. Good night, everybody. <laughs>